0: Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. We are counting down to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Thanks, Isabella. Yes, it's true, we've made it. Welcome to episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. We had planned to have some special items this week, but we've had to carry them over because of the breaking news on Thursday this week of the decision by the Central European Court of effectively invalidating the EU-US Privacy Shield. And because of that, we've had to... Because this is such a fundamental decision... We've had to move things around and put that as the key feature in this episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, which will be coming up just after this introduction. Please do listen to the contents of this first section especially, because it could well affect you even if you don't believe that you have data that transfers to the US. If you use something like Google Analytics then the chances are that you do have data that goes to the US. So hence the need for carrying out a data protection impact assessment, probably in our guess is going to be something like 80% of UK companies to check on how they are conforming to the new rules and making use of the standard contractual clauses where those are appropriate. So we begin this week with a look into the judgment from the Central European Court of Justice and the ruling on the case brought by Max Rems against Facebook, its effect on the EU-US Privacy Shield and what that means for all organisations going forward. We then have the results of our competition, which we've been running for the last few weeks as we've been building up to episode 100. So you better find out who are the top five countries that listen to our show and also which one of you has been the lucky winner who's won £100. We then move on to look at the data breach into a number of celebrity accounts at Twitter. We then have news of a data breach at South East Coast Ambulance here in the UK. We then had results of a survey by PCI-PAL into the commercial consequences of data breaches and how likely it is that you would lose your clients if you had a data breach in your own organisation. We then have an update on the MGM data breach case which shows that more people were affected by that data breach than was originally thought. We then look at upcoming changes to the data protection law in Singapore, which will bring that law more into line with GDPR. We then have news that a second IT contractor has been charged over the landmark white data breach. We then have news from New Zealand where the police are investigating a data breach. We then have news of a data breach at the auction website Live Auctioneers. We then moved to California, where Walmart are being sued under the CCPA. And finally, this week, we go to Germany, where it, it said that police are being handed too much data by the German citizens. And so there's going to be a review into quite how German police intelligence gathering services work. So, as always, a real mixture of articles for you in episode 100 of the GDPR Weekly Show. We always welcome your feedback. If you have any feedback for us, please send it to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read all the pieces of feedback that we receive and whether possible we include them in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. And can I just say that a number of you have asked us to look at the Irish 12ID19 Track and Trace app and we will be doing that in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We had hoped to do it this week but the Matt Swim's case uh, rather pushed that back. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In what is probably the most important GDPR-related judgement this year, the European Court of Justice, in what's been termed the SREMS2 case, decided this week that the EU-US Privacy Shield relied on for lots of organisations to transfer data between the EU and the USA should be struck down as being inadequate to meet the requirements of GDPR. This really is a very major decision because whilst the court found that the standard contractual clauses could be used in place of the EU-US Data Privacy Shield, they did impose some conditions on that too, and these conditions are likely to be quite onerous on organisations who are transferring data to and from the US. To give a bit of background on the standard contractual clauses, The standard contractual clauses are clauses issued by the European Commission that offer safeguards on data protection for the international transfer of data. It was these clauses which were the subject of the initial complaint by Matt Srems against the European Union and particularly against Facebook Ireland transferring his data outside of the EU to Facebook Inc in the USA. Mr Srems argued that the US regime did not provide the data protection safeguards that he was entitled to under EU law. The Irish DPC, which was responsible for initially investigating this, went to the Irish High Court for permission to refer the case to the European Court for Justice. The DPC had concerns that there was no sufficient US remedy for an EU citizen whose personal data may be at risk of being accessed by US state agencies for national security purposes in a way that was incompatible with the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. The DPC sought a ruling on the validity of the standard contractual clauses. So why has this affected the EU-US Privacy Shield, you might be asking yourselves? Well, because in his closing statement, the barrister acting on behalf of Facebook essentially threw the Privacy Shield under the bus because he asked the court to also judge on the Privacy Shield when this had not been part of the original complaint by Max Rems. Nonetheless, the court took it upon itself to look at the Privacy Shield as requested and came to the conclusion that it was inadequate and should no longer be used, and that its continued use would be considered to be a breach of GDPR. Now before that, has everyone listening to this running for the hills, please don't panic. The individual bodies in each European country responsible for enforcing GDPR, and including the ICO here in the UK, are still pondering the tort's decision, and quite what the implications will be, and almost certainly the European Data Protection Board who oversee the whole GDPR within the EU and UK at the moment, will come up with some form of transition period to allow time for organisations to transfer away from the EU-US privacy shield to the standard contractual clauses. Now, as we go to broadcast, because we are only two days away from when the judgment appeared, we've no idea at the moment what form that transition is going to take, or how long organisations will have to make any necessary changes. And it is true that in the interim, potentially organisations relying on the EU-US Privacy Shield are potentially vulnerable to action from users whose data is being transferred under that mechanism. However, I have to stress that the current feel is that that's unlikely to happen, in the short term at least. It doesn't mean everyone can sit back and wait till the end of the year before we do anything but it doesn't mean we don't all need to be running around like rabbits talking in the headlights in the next few days. In the decision, the Advocate General noted that if the European Commission has not decided that the level of protection in a third country is adequate, the data controller can proceed with the data transfer if sufficient safeguards are in place and the standard contractual clauses can be one of those safeguards. The Advocate's opinion discusses two methods of ensuring GDPR protections on data transfer to third countries are met. One is an adequacy decision, the third country's law and practices awards protection equivalent to the GDPR, read in the context of the EU Charter. Examples of that would be Canada and Israel. The second is the use of the standard contractual clauses which contractually ensure the required level of protection regardless of the level of protection guaranteed in the third country. However, there must be a method of ensuring that the standard contractual clauses-based transfers can be suspended or prohibited where those clauses are breached or impossible to honour. And what the Court has also said is that it's recommended that any situation where reliance is being placed on the standard contractual clauses, that there's a regular review of the legislative situation in the third country to ensure that the standard contractual clauses and the motions put forward by the the data processor or data controller who is in that country, either the recipient of the information, are still considered adequate and still meet the needs of GDPR. And for that, it's recommending that a data protection impact assessment is carried out. Now, carrying out a data protection impact assessment is not overly onerous. The difficulty, I think, that lots of organisations are going to have is establishing whether the legal regime in the third country is suitable for the use of the standard contractual clauses to safeguard the data under GDPR even if the nation's law in that country would not meet the requirements of GDPR. Even the use of standard contractual clauses is not 100% guaranteed yet because we're still awaiting the CJEU's final decision on this. Now, although the CJEU normally follows the Advocate General's lead, they don't have to, so there might be a slight variation. We all have to wait and see. But in the meantime, organisations transferring data abroad would be wise to revisit their use of the standard contractual clauses and to carry out a data protection impact assessment for any situations where the standard contractual clauses are being used. We here are well versed in data protection impact assessments. haven't carried out quite a number for over 100 organisations in the last few years. And so if you'd like help carrying out a data protection impact assessment into your data and ensure that you're still sufficiently covered by the standard contractual clauses, or indeed if you're currently relying on the EU-US Privacy Shield and you'd like to move to the standard contractual clauses, then please do reach out to us as quickly as you can. Just send an email to helpdesk at and one of our specialists will get straight back to you and guide you through what needs to happen to get you back on track as soon as we possibly can. The UK government issued a response to the European Court of Justice decision in the Schrems 2 case. It said, International data transfers are vitally important to global economies and societies, and we look forward to developing and supporting mechanisms that can best facilitate international data transfers. Coronavirus COVID-19 has demonstrated the importance of international data transfers. The recent crisis has shown how data transfers keep economies moving and societies functioning, being crucial to working from home, supporting a marked shift to communications and commerce moving online and underpinning the healthcare response. The UK government is committed to ensuring high data protection standards and supporting UK organisations on international data transfer issues. It is disappointed that the EU's adequacy decision for US Privacy Shield has been invalidated by the Court in its judgement of 16 July 2020. The UK Government intervened in the case arguing in support of the validity of standard contractual clauses. It is pleased that this important mechanism for transferring data internationally remains in place and is considering any further implications that may arise from the judgment in respect of this. The UK Government is working with the Information Commissioner's Office and international counterparts to address the impacts of the judgment and ensure that updated guidance on international data transfers will be available as soon as possible. We are expecting that during the coming week most of the data protection authorities across Europe will issue a statement about the court's judgment and what they see as being the next steps forward with regard to the standard contractual clauses. So far, we've had statements only from the Irish DPC. Not surprisingly, they were quick to make a statement since it was them who took the case to the uh, European Court for Justice in the first place. And we've also had statements from the German Federal DPA, the DPA of Hamburg, and the DPA of rhineland faust because in Germany each state has its own DPA. The Irish DPC states that the ECJ's ruling means that, in principle, standard contractual clauses remain valid to transfer data to countries worldwide, but the DPC also states that, in practice, the application of the SCC's transfer mechanism to transfers of personal data to the United States is now questionable. Going forward, careful examination and assessments on a case-by-case basis will need to be made. Nonetheless, the Irish DPC states that it will be developing a common position with other EU DPAs, presumably prior to enforcement. Germany's federal DPA states that although transfers on the basis of privacy children are no longer permitted, the ECJ made clear that international data transfers are still possible and promises to advise intensively on the transition from privacy shield to other mechanisms. It also indicates that as soon as tomorrow, EU DPAs will meet to coordinate a common European approach to post rems enforcement. The federal DPA states that DPAs may insist on transition in particularly relevant cases, indicating that initial enforcement may be prioritised by risk. The DPA of the German state of rheinland palatinate said, There is no grace period for transitioning to new transfer mechanisms from the privacy shield. To use the standard contractual clauses, data exporters need to look at the specific US company that will receive the EU data and determine whether that company can protect the data as required by the clauses. Thus, the DPA states that, as a rule, standard contractual clauses cannot be used to transfer EU data to US telecommunications companies, nor can standard contractual clauses be used if the data is ultimately stored by a US cloud provider. Now, that, of course, is assuming that the Actual servers for the cloud provider are in the US, which a lot of US cloud p- providers also have servers in Europe and, indeed, elsewhere in the world. The Rhineland DPA also suggests transfer-by-transfer assessment documentation should be maintained, and that's something that appears to be common in all of the judgments, and so that's why we're saying it's important that a data protection impact assessment is carried out and documented. The DPA of the German state of Hamburg expressed concern that the ECJ is kicking the ball to the DPAs, to determine when to suspend transfers. It states that DPAs now stand before the decision of whether transfers on the basis of standard contractual clauses should be questioned overall. But the Hamburg DPA closes by stating that European DPAs should develop a common strategy for these issues and I say that's what we're expecting to emerge at some point in the coming week. Once we have that common strategy, we will of course bring that to you And doubtless that will be one of the key features in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. In reaching its decision on the Privacy Shield, the CJEU examined the Privacy Shield in consideration of the requirements of GDPR and the provisions of the Charter of the Fundamental Rights of the European Union that guarantee respect for private and family life, personal data protection and the right to effective judicial protection. These requirements were considered against the backdrop of the limitations imposed by US law that allows access to personal data by US public authorities, including Section 702 of FISA and Executive Order 12333. Based on this analysis, the CJEU concluded that the limitations on the protection of personal data arising from US law that allows US public authorities to access and use personal data are not circumscribed by the Privacy Shield in a way that satisfies EU law. And the Privacy Shield does not provide individuals with a sufficient level of judicial redress to satisfy EU law. In summary, effective immediately, the Privacy Shield no longer provides a valid legal basis for transfer of EU personal data to the US, suffering the same fate that the Safe Harbor Framework did five years earlier. Ironically, of course, that case was also brought by Matt Schrems. Organisations relying solely on privacy seal for such transfers must therefore take urgent action or face potentially significant liability. Turning to the standard contractual clauses, the central question before the CJEU was whether it is possible that such clauses could provide an adequate level of protection over personal data transferred outside of the EU, given that those standard contractual clauses cannot bind public authorities of the third country i.e. the clauses can only be between the data controller and data processor or the data controller and data controller in joint data controller arrangements. Ultimately, the CJEU confirmed that the theoretical validity of the standard contractual clauses is a mechanism for the transfer of personal data outside the EU. However, this validation came with a rather large caveat. The court stressed that entering into standard contractual clauses is not sufficient in and of itself. The controller or processor must also, on a case-by-case basis, verify that the laws of the destination country ensure adequate protection under EU law of any personal data transferred pursuant to standard contractual clauses. Where the laws of the destination country do not ensure adequate protection, controllers must implement supplementary measures and additional safeguards to attain the required level of protection, or else they must cease the transfer. Furthermore, the CJEU expressly concluded that the EU supervisory authorities, i.e. the DPAs or the ICO here in the UK, are required to suspend or prohibit transfers to third countries pursuant to standard contractual clauses if they are of the view that the clauses are not or cannot be complied with in the third country in a way that ensures the required level of protection. Based on the court's finding in respect to the privacy shield, it's difficult to see how these supervisory authorities would be able to avoid such a conclusion in the case of transfers to the US. And as I say, that's why we're awaiting this Update from all of the EU DPAs, which we are expecting to appear at some point during the coming week. For the US, the US Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross said that the Department of Commerce was deeply disappointed with the decision to strike down the Privacy Shield. We have been and will remain in close contact with the European Commission and the European Data Protection Board on this matter and hope to be able to limit the negative consequences to the $7.1 trillion transatlantic economic relationship that is so vital to our respective citizens, companies and governments, he said. For his part, Matt Schrems said, The court clarified for a second time now that there is a clash of EU privacy law and US surveillance law. As the EU will not change its fundamental rights to please the NSA, The only way to overcome this clash is for the US to introduce solid privacy rights for all people, including foreigners. Surveillance reform, therefore, becomes crucial for the business interests of Silicon Valley. Now, of course, the standard contractual clauses don't only apply to the US. Standard contractual clauses are used to transfer data from the EU to some 180 countries, including Australia, Singapore, South Korea, Brazil, India and Mexico. The Business Software Alliance, one of the parties to the case, said the court's decision to invalidate the Privacy Shield would create a barrier for electronic commerce between the US and the EU. Today's Privacy Shield decision just removed from the table one of the few and most trusted ways to transfer data across the Atlantic, said Thomas Bowie, Director-General of the BSA. The impact will be felt by large and small enterprises on both sides of the Atlantic, when businesses are focused on recovering from the economic impacts of 12 ID 19 and are increasingly relying on data-driven tools and services to do so. So, aside from the standard contractual clauses, what are the other options? Well, really, there are only two other options. One is to move from any US cloud-based provider you're using to one that's based solely in Europe. Or, the alternative is to actually stop using cloud-based service and move your data back in-house. Both of those, of course, are fought with difficulty and not in substantial cost. And so they're not to be undertaken lightly. And so that's why we will be returning to this whole issue in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, looking deeper at some of the impacts. There is also, though, a serious implication for this for the UK, because from the end of this year, from the 31st of December, should there not be an agreement reached between the UK and the EU, Then the UK will become a third country, and it itself will be reliant on standard contractual clauses for the transfer of data between European countries and the UK. So if you're a UK-based business, although we just said about transferring to EU-based cloud providers, actually, there might be real benefit in looking at just UK-based cloud providers. We have provided a useful data sheet on the information so that it can help you make your decisions and you can download that data sheet as a PDF from our website at www.gdprweeklyshow.com forward slash That's S for Sugar, C for Charlie, H for Harold, R for Roger, E for Echo, M for Mother, S for Sugar. So if you want a fact sheet please go to www.gdprweeklyshow.com forward slash as we said we will be returning to this in next week's episode of the gdpr weekly show hey mike it's episode 100 i know in the next few minutes we will reveal the answers to our big competition and of course reveal the winners okay here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. thanks isabella so, here we go. Here's the reveal of the winners and the also the top five countries where we have listeners. I'm going to do the countries in reverse order. In fifth place, we have Germany, who provide 2% of our listeners. In fourth place, we have the Netherlands, who provide 4% of our listeners. In third place, we have the Republic of Ireland, who provide 5% of our listeners. In second place, we have the USA, who provide 31% of our listeners. And in top place, number one, not surprisingly, perhaps we have the UK, who provides 32% of our listeners. Only one of you got the order correct. And so I'm very pleased to say that Grant Hume, listening in Milton Keynes, you are the winner of our £100 prize. And we'll be in touch with you after the show to get your contact details so that we can get that money paid straight over to you. And maybe we'll have a word from you in next week's episode of the GDPR Week Show. Whilst we're just in this segment, can I say a big thank you to those of you who've stuck with us over the last 100 episodes, and here's to the next 100. We're really looking forward to it. We've got some great ideas coming forward for you, and you may also notice a change in the audio quality of the show as we are making the move from Audacity to Adobe Audition for preparing the show, but bear with us over the next few weeks as we make that change. And also, a big shout-out that if you are listening to us at the moment in Guadeloupe, Chile, Moldova, Oman Malaya, Paraguay Myanmar or Peru you are the only person in your country listening to us at the GDPR Weekly Show so we'd love to have more listeners in your countries too so please do spread the word and indeed anywhere you are in the world please do spread the word about the GDPR Weekly Show the more listeners we get the more we can put into the show and the better show we can produce for everyone As the UK continues to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and as schools prepare to take back all of their children, either in August or September, depending on where in the UK you are, the National Cyber Security Centre has provided schools with a list of eight questions which the schools should answer, bearing in mind that their systems may have become compromised or become more vulnerable due to the long period of time, since March in most cases, that the schools have been closed. So the questions which the centre is saying that school headmasters and governors should be asking themselves are as follows. One, does the school have a list of the different organisations that provide its IT services? And are those details up to date? Two, does the school leader know who manages or coordinates the IT within the school? Three, has the school identified the most critical parts of the stall's digital estate and sought assurances about its security? four, does the school have a proper backup and restoration plan in place? 5. Do the school's governance and IT policies reflect the importance of good cybersecurity? 6. Does the school train staff on the common cybersecurity threats and incidents that schools experience? 7. If the school temporarily lost access to its data and or its internet connection, would the school still be able to operate? And 8. Does the school know who to contact if it becomes a victim of a cyber incident or a data breach? Now, if you're the headmaster or governor of a school and you require any help with any of these points, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Just drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will be delighted to get in touch with you and help you through the necessary steps to ensure that your school is following this latest guidance. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal. We help people get jobs. A data breach at social media platform Twitter made the mainstream media headlines this week when some 130 accounts were targeted by attackers during a Bitcoin scamming attack. Accounts attacked included those of well-known personalities and celebrities including Elon Musk, Bill Gates and Barack Obama. The attack was quickly stopped within 30 minutes or so and the messages taken down, but not before the messages which invited people to buy Bitcoin in return for doubling their money had attracted some $100,000 of money to be spent on Bitcoins by Twitter users in what is now known to be a criminal scam. Twitter said there's currently no evidence that the attackers had accessed users' passwords, so resetting these is not considered a necessary measure at this stage and Twitter is currently investigating whether the hackers gained any access to personal direct messages on the platform. Although Twitter initially described the infiltration as a social engineering attack, the company is understood to also be investigating the possibility that an employee was bribed into taking the action. In a statement, Twitter said, We're working with the impacted account owners and will continue to do so over the next several days. We're continuing to assess whether non-public data related to these accounts was compromised, and we'll provide updates if we determine what occurred. In the meantime, the option to download data from your Twitter account has been switched off. The company said it was taking aggressive steps to secure its systems. They said that their investigations had tracked the Bitcoin wallet concerned and the hackers have at the time of broadcast managed to solicit 376 fraudulent donations to the tune of 12.87 Bitcoin equivalent to approximately £93,000. Twitter said that in addition to freezing the 130 accounts that were involved for a period of time, they have also limited functionality for a much larger group of accounts, like all verified accounts, even those with no evidence of being compromised, while they continue to fully investigate. They said they accepted that this was disruptive, but it was an important step to reduce risk. Most functionality has been restored, but we may take further actions and and we'll update you if we do, the spokesman said. The Motherboard website was reporting that they had actually paid a Twitter employee to grant them access to their own account with accounts taken over using an internal Twitter tool. Some users posted screenshots of the tool in question and have been circulating these images online. The incident is certainly one of the most significant security breaches in Twitter's history and follows a string of smaller scale hacks over the previous months and years. Only last month, Twitter alerted business customers after flagging a data breach, suggesting their personal details may have been compromised due to an issue with the way Twitter cached data on web browsers. The information for those who were signed up to the company's advertising or analytics platform may have been accessed by third parties as a result of the glitch. This follows an incident in August 2019 in which Twitter found an issue with its privacy settings, meaning users may have inadvertently been sharing data with third parties. This, however, was more of a privacy violation than a data breach. The largest breach to date, barring this week's incident, arose in 2018 after a bug allowed companies to start to view account passwords in an unencrypted form. In that instance, the company asked 330 million users to change their passwords urgently for fear their accounts had been compromised. Twitter are keen to stress that they have this current incident all now under control and so we're not expecting any further updates from Twitter but if we do receive any, we will of course bring them to you as soon as we possibly can. Here in the UK, the South East Coast Ambulance Service has referred itself to the ICO following a significant data breach in May 2020 in which the personal and medical details of all ambulance staff could have been seen by employees outside of senior management of the service. An internal memo revealed that a server containing details of sick leave, including operations and mental and physical health issues, was for 10 days accessible to seven people who were not managers. Southeast Coast Ambulance Service said that the issue was fixed and internal inquiries made to ensure no one had access the information. A spokesman said we take information governance extremely seriously and took steps to address the issue when it was discovered. This was an isolated incident which occurred while an update was taking place to our systems and which resulted in the usual restricted access controls in place being unknowingly lifted. An investigation took place and it was established that during a 10-day period in May 2020 there were a small number of individuals within the Trust who could have potentially accessed personal information. These individuals were contacted and all bar one were unaware of this potential access. The remaining individuals already alerted the department involved when they became aware. There is no evidence that any staff details were inappropriately accessed, however we decided to write to all staff that it could have been potentially been affected in the interest of transparency. We also reported the issue to the Information Commissioner's Office for the same reason. We are sorry for any distress that may have been towards the members of staff and would like to assure them that the issue hasn't been resolved. If we receive any update on this from either the South East Coast Ambulance Service or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episodes of the Week Show. You've tried the rest and not impressed. Take a chance and try the best. A survey conducted by global payment solutions provider PCI-PAL across the UK, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Australia and Canada of adults aged 18 to 65 and covering some 3,500 individuals altogether found that the majority of people would take their customer away from a business if that business had been involved in a significant data breach. In Italy, almost half, 49%, said they would take their spend elsewhere, 43% in Spain, 39% in Germany and 27% in France. A further 47% across Europe said they would stop spending for at least a few months following the data security incident, with just 4% stating that a security breach wouldn't stop them shopping. This shows that a majority of consumers would question their spending habits in the event of a data breach or cyber attack. When asked which industries are considered to be least secure, the financial services sector came out with the most mentioned across all the European geographies, with 52% of Italians, 48% of Germans, 46% of Spaniards, and 40% of French respondents suggesting this industry over others. The financial services industry was closely followed by government-slash-public sector, with a third of all respondents suggesting this sector, closely followed by utilities and travel, with 28% of respondents highlighting their feelings of insecurity towards these types of organisations. When comparing consumer trusts in either local or national organisations, the survey highlighted regional variances. In Spain or Italy, there appears to be a greater trust with national or corporate companies, which is considered to follow more stringent security protocols, while a third of French consumers lean towards local businesses who they consider to care more about their reputation, and the third of German consumers felt that hackers wouldn't target local businesses because they're just too small. Over a third, 36% of consumers surveyed in Europe, said they directly asked the company about their security practices or do their own research before spending, while almost half report re- regretting not better vetting in company's security practices before parting with their information or their money. The coronavirus pandemic appears to have further heightened consumers' concerns, with 33% of UK and European consumers stating that they feel more concerned about how businesses are handling their personal data today compared to how they were before COVID-19 appeared on the scene. In addition, 40% of Germans and 38% of Italians specifically said they would never return to a business if personal data has been compromised due to a business's poor data security practices during the pandemic. This worries further elevated when asked specifically about sharing payment information with businesses operating remotely. Here, three-quarters of respondents expressed some level of concern, with 28% stating they are extremely concerned about how their payment data is being handled during the coronavirus pandemic. PCI-PAL is the global provider of secure payment solutions for contact centres and businesses. PCI-PAL provides a true omni-channel solution so payments can be managed securely via telephone or across any digital channel, including web chat, WhatsApp, social media, email and SMS. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Regular listeners may remember that way back in episode 79 of the GDPR Weekly Show, our headline was about a data breach at MGM Hotels and Resorts. This week, it's emerged that millions more MGM Resorts guests were compromised than was first thought. In February, we reported, it was reported that details of 10.6 million customers may have been acquired by hackers, however the actual figure was revealed to be magnitudes greater after personal records of roughly 142.5 million users were put up for sale on an underground marketplace. Available at either $2,900 worth of either Bitcoin or Monero, the database is said to contain personally identifiable information such as names, postal and email addresses, phone numbers and dates of birth but no financial information. Just a little bit of background, the MGM data breach came about as a result of a security vulnerability in one of the hotel chain's cloud servers, which allowed hackers to siphon information about previous guests, including Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and pop star Justin Bieber. After uncovering the incident, MGM alerted the affected customers as per applicable data protection regulations, but did not publish any more information about the breach. MGM claims that it has always been aware of the total number of deaths compromised, but has said it is not legally obliged to disclose that number. In a statement, a spokesman said MGM Resorts was aware of the scope of this previously reported incident from last summer and has already addressed the situation. There are rumours, however, that even the 142.5 million figure could be wrong, with a post to one Russian hacking forum boasting of a database stocked with information on upwards of 200 million MGM customers we suspect this is one of those stories that is not going to go away. And so if we receive any update on this, either from MGM or from any other source, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal. We help people get jobs. It has been eight years since the enactment of Singapore's Comprehensive Data Protection Law, the Personal Data Protection Act 2012. On May 14, 2020, a public consultation paper and accompanying Personal Data Protection Amendment Bill were published to solicit feedback on several proposed revisions to the Personal Data Protection Act. The consultation closed on May 28, 2020, and it's understood that over 70 responses have been received from organisations and 17 responses from individuals. So, just what are the proposed changes? Key amendments include increased financial penalties for contraventions of the PDPA, mandatory data breach notification, revised consent framework, new data portability obligation, enhanced rules on telemarketing and spam, all which serve to bring the PDPA more in line with GDPR, which, as we've mentioned several times recently in the GDPR, which you show, is becoming an increasing trend that GDPR is becoming the standard to which other countries are bringing their data protection laws into line. And I think that that should be taken as a great credit to the UK and the EU in putting together such well-thought-out legislation as the General Data Protection Regulation. Let's look at these changes in a little more detail. Regarding the increased financial penalties for contravention of PDPA, there will be an increase in the financial penalty to raise the cap to 10% of the gross annual turnover in Singapore of an organisation. If its annual turnover it exceeds $10 million Singapore dollars or $1 million Singapore dollars, whichever is greater. In terms of the mandatory data breach notification, a mandatory obligation will be imposed to notify the Commission and affected individuals of any notifiable data breach. It's been determined that a data breach will be notifiable if it is likely to result in a significant harm to an affected individual or effects not fewer than the minimum number of affected individuals previously prescribed, which has been proposed to be 500. A data breach is defined broadly to refer to any unauthorised access of or similar risk posed to personal data, or the loss of any storage medium or device on which personal data is stored in circumstances where the unauthorised access or other similar risk posed to personal data is likely to occur. A data breach notification to the commission must be made without undue delay and in any event no later than three calendar days from the day an organisation assesses that a breach is notifiable, which assessment must be carried out expeditiously. Those of you familiar with GDPR will spot the similarities there where of course in GDPR is required to notify a data breach within seventy two hours. The exception to notifying the affected individuals are where remedial actions have been taken or where the personal data is subject to technological protection measures, e.g. encryption, such that the breach is unlikely to result in significant harm to the affected individuals. A data intermediary is required to notify an organisation of a suspected data breach which affects personal data it was processing on that organisation's behalf without undue delay. So again, similarities to GDPR there with data controllers and data processors. Turning now to the revised consent framework, the scope of deemed consent will be clarified and expanded to include for contractual necessity, i.e. where data processing is reasonably necessary, necessary to perform a contract, and where individuals have been notified of the purpose of the data processing and given an opportunity to opt out. Here, the organisation must assess that processing is unlikely to have an adverse effect on the individual. This type of deemed consent cannot be relied upon for direct marketing. Further, since this is not an exception to consent, individuals still retain the right to withdraw their consent subsequently. There will be three new exceptions to this consent, the first being legitimate interest. This exception applies whether the legitimate interest of your organisation and the benefits of the public or any section thereof to together outweigh any adverse effect on the individual. This is distinct from how legitimate interest could be applied under GDPR. Examples of how legitimate interest could be relied on in Singapore include where data is processed for the purpose of detecting or preventing illegal activities like fraud or money laundering or threats to physical safety and security or preventing the misuse of services. In order to rely upon this exception to consent, organisations must conduct a risky assessment and disclose their reliance on this exception. It's very important though that this exception cannot be used in any way for direct marketing messages to individuals. The other exception is in terms of business improvement. This exception applies where there is a need to carry out operational efficiency and service improvements, develop or enhance new products or services, or know more about the organisation's customers. But in this instance, the use of personal data must be what a reasonable person would consider appropriate in the circumstances, and the data must not be used to make a decision that is likely to have an adverse effect on any individual. This exception also applies to a group of companies, including subsidiaries within an organisation. And the third change to consent is revised research exception. This exception applies providing that, amongst other things, the use of personal data or results of the research does not have an adverse effect on individuals and the results are not published in a form that identifies any individual. There will also be a loosening on the restrictions on the use of personal data for research purposes without consent. For instance, the exception can apply to institutes carrying out scientific research and development or art and social science research, or to market research aimed at understanding potential customer segments. However, disclosure for research purposes will continue to be subject to more stringent restrictions relating to impactability and the public interest. Turning now to the new data portability obligation, the amendment bill introduces a new data portability right for individuals giving them the ability to request the transmission of their data to another service provider. There will be a white list of data categories to which portability applies. There will be built-in safeguards for individuals tailored to the risks associated with the release of data under data portability. This should include cooling off periods for certain datasets to provide time for a consumer to change their mind and withdrawing the porting request and the establishment of a blacklist for organisations that porting organisations must justifiably refuse to port data to. Refusals of porting requests must be notified to the individuals concerned, together with the reasons for the refusal and within a reasonable time. The Commission will have the power to review these refusals and any fees for reporting of data. There will also be a new Spam Control Act which will cover the bulk sending of commercial text messages to instant messaging accounts. The do not call provisions will prohibit the sending of specific messages to telephone numbers obtained through the use of dictionary attacks and address harvesting software. Third party checkers will be required to communicate accurate do not call register results to the organisations on behalf of which they are checking the do not call register and the chatters will be liable for do-not-call infringements, resulting from any erroneous information provided by them. The do-not-call provisions will be enforced under the same administrative regime as the other data protection obligations in the Spam Control Act, as opposed to being enforced as criminal offences. Other changes proposed in the amendment bill include an express mention of accountability in the bill, indicating that organisations will be expected to demonstrate compliance. There will also be a new offence, namely that any unauthorised disclosure of personal data that is carried out knowingly or recklessly, any unauthorised use of personal data that is carried out knowingly or recklessly and results in a wrongful gain or a wrongful loss to any person, and any unauthorised re-identification of anonymised data that is carried out knowingly or recklessly. This does not include public officers who are subject to the Public Sector Governance Act 2018. There will also be some other new offences. It will be an offence for a person to fail to comply with an order to appear before the Commission or an inspector of the Commission, to provide a statement in relation to any investigation, or to produce any document specified in a written notice. Where the Commission reasonably believes that an organisation has not complied with the PDPA, the organisation can give, and the Commission may accept, a written voluntary undertaking. The Commission will have discretion to vary the terms of such undertaking and to require additional undertakings where appropriate. Any failure to comply with a voluntary undertaking may give rise to a direction by the Commission. The Commission will also have power to approve mediation schemes and to direct complainants to resolve data protection disputes via mediation without the need to secure the consent of both parties. Organisations will be requested to preserve personal data requested under an Access Reporting request for at least 30 calendar days after rejection of the request or until the individual has exhausted their right to apply to the Commission for reconsideration of the request or appeal to the Data Protection Appeal Committee, High Court or Court of Appeal, whichever is the later). The scope of the business asset transaction exception in the PDPA will be extended to the personal data of independent contractors in addition to that of employees, customers, directors, officers and shareholders of the organisation. So if you're an organisation that either trades in or is in Singapore what actions should you be taking right now? Well the first is to do with the internal documents. You should check your data protection policies and standard operating procedures and make sure that they've been reviewed and updated when necessary. Such a plan should guide stakeholders on how to identify a data breach when it occurs, who to inform, how to record and document relevant matters, and other specific actions to take in response to an incident. In terms of external documents, businesses should ensure that relevant agreements are reviewed to provide adequate protection against data breaches. This may include the provision of undertakings from counterparties on data privacy and security, subcontracting restrictions, the right to audit and insurance requirements, and liabilities and indemnities. Crucially, there should be a comprehensive provision to deal with instant and breach escalation, assistance to remediate and notification obligations. And then in operational terms, you need to think about the portability, which should would be helpful for businesses to engage with relevant stakeholders and discuss an action plan that addresses any necessary technical arrangements for the business's operational compliance as soon as you can. It's also useful to conduct training to familiarise employees with any updated policies and the instant response plan, and to run cybersecurity simulations and data breach exercises to test employees on these. Just like the rest of the world, thanks to ID 19 in Singapore remote working is becoming the new normal, and so it's especially critical that employees know what to do should they encounter a data incident. Remember that any delay on the part of a single employee could potentially lead to serious repercussions for the entire organisation. Moving to Australia now, where, as investigations continue, a second IT contractor has been charged over the landmark white data breach. It's understood that the contractor has been charged in relation to two data breach incidents that wiped $50 million from the property valuation company formerly known as Landmark White last year. Detectives from the Cybercrime Unit arrested a 39-year-old Arncliffe man on Friday as part of an ongoing investigation into the alleged breaches against the company now known as Acumentis. The man who is the software contractor has been charged with unauthorised impairment of electronic communication, which carries a maximum sentence of 10 years' imprisonment. This second arrest comes nine months after Stephen Durant, 49, was charged for allegedly accessing Acumentis' database without authorisation while employed as an IT contractor. Durant is still facing 24 charges for the unauthorised database access, which exposed more than 170,000 data records, including personal information and valuation records, to the dark web. Charges include eight counts of dealing with identification information to commit indictable offences and unauthorised access with intent to commit serious indictable offences. New South Wales Police said the second alleged offender was charged after subsequent investigations undertaken as part of Strike Force Flight uncovered additional information about a fibre cable. In a statement, a spokesman said officers uncovered information that a physical fibre taper which enabled data transmission between two businesses was severed at a facility in Ultimo on Sunday 31 March 2019. Police were told that electronic communication used by the Australian-based company was impaired for a 10-day period, resulting in significant financial loss. Unlike Grant, the second alleged offender has been granted strict additional bail to appear at Sutherland local court on August 18, 2020. New South Wales Police Cybercrime Squad Commander, Detective Acting Superintendent, Jordan A. R. said the offences by the two alleged offenders had a serious impact on Acumentis. The community need to know how serious these offences are and the impact they can have on hardworking Australian businesses and their employees, he said. While the exact financial loss is yet to be determined, it is expected that nearly 50 million Australian dollars in combined market capital and revenue loss can be directed, attributed to these offences. In addition, the company incurred a significant human cost, losing around 130 employees through contract termination or redundancy. These alleged actions essentially crippled the company, leaving them without access to critical data for a significant period of time. Investigations under Strike Force are continuing. Landmark White rebranded as Acumentis in December after the data breach incidents caused a major drop on the stock exchange. We will be returning to this story later in the year when these cases come before the courts in New South Wales. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Police are investigating the possible hack of a New Zealand research company which could put the details of people who have been in contact with the police at risk. The contact details of some people who have been in touch with police were given to the company and the information was intended to be used for service quality research. However, on Wednesday, police announced the company concerned that alerted it to a data breach. The company has also reported the breach to police as a crime and our high-tech cybercrime team is now investigating, Assistant Commissioner Jevon Musgimin said. They went on to say, We are working to understand the scope of the hack and the potential impact of any security breaches of information provided by the police. Once we have a better understanding of the real risks of people and the potential impact, we will look to inform those who may have been affected. The police have stopped surveying and sending the information to the company until the investigation is complete. In a statement, the police said they would urge the public to stay vigilant online with tips including being cautious about emails and phone calls, asking you to update or verify details online, being cautious of emails saying you've won prizes from competitions that you don't remember entering, being tortured of emails that try to get you to act quickly by threatening you with legal action or loss of an account, ignoring emails asking for personal information such as passwords or bank details, and contacting an organisation if you're unsure an email claiming to be from an organisation is legitimate. If we receive any update on this from the New Zealand Police, we will of course bring it to you in the next road episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. <laughs> Live Auctioneers, an online antiques marketplace, revealed that it suffered a data breach that security researchers have claimed includes the personal data and track passwords of millions of users. In a security alert published on Saturday, July 11th, Live Auctioneers said that encrypted passwords had been stolen along with names, email addresses, mailing addresses, and phone numbers. The New York based company confirmed that an unauthorized third party accessed certain user data through a security breach at a live auctioneer's data processing partner that occurred on June 19th. After the only incident, the auctioneer forced the password reset for bidder account and blocked the unauthorised access. Although the company said it had no reason to believe auction history was affected, passwords for auctioneer accounts were also reset as a precautionary measure. It is understood that on the 10th of July, a post was found on a cybercrime marketplace advertising the information of 3.4 million live auctioned users as well as 3 million tracked username and password combinations. It is understood that 24 email password combinations furnished by the seller to verify the data dump's authenticity included tracked MD5 protected passwords. MD5 is a common algorithm used for encrypting passwords and other information, MD5 was developed in 1991 for use as a cryptographic hash function. However, the ageing algorithm has been dismissed as cryptographically broken and unsuitable for further use after a number of vulnerabilities emerged. Nevertheless, a 2019 study by academics in Greece found that md 5 was still being widely used for securing and storing user passwords. It is understood that amongst the sample data, some IP addresses were present in the sample containing personally identifiable information of 15 US and UK based users. Live Auctioneers said that every data type was not necessarily present on the account of every user at the time of the breach. If you are a, a Live Auctioneer user, then you're recommended to change your password and also on any other sites where you might use the same username and password combination. Live Auctioneers, for their part, were also warning users to be aware of phishing emails. Founded in 2002, Live Auctioneers has around 29 millions of art, antiques, jewellery and selectables up for auction. Among the current notable offerings on the platform is an Enigma machine used by Nazi Germany to encrypt sensitive communications during World War II. If we receive any more information on this data breach from live auctioneers, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I wish I could find a better job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal? Yes, Jubal.com. Jubal. We help people get jobs. Back in episode 98, we updated you on the Californian Consumer Privacy Act and that was coming into force from the 1st of July. Well, it's not taken long for actions to begin to be taken under the enforcement of CCPA in California and Walmart has become the latest big brand name accused of violating the new data breach regulations. Walmart is the subject of a new complaint alleging that customers now face significant injuries and damage after an unspecified incident. According to the suit filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California, customer names, addresses, financial and other information were among the haul for attackers. The suit alleges that as a result of defendants' wrongful actions and inactions, customer information was stolen. Many customers of Walmart have had their personally identifiable information compromised, have had their privacy rights violated, have been exposed to the risk of fraud and identity theft, and have otherwise suffered damages. The suit goes on to say, Further, despite the fact that the accounts were available for sale on the dark web, and Walmart's website contains multiple severe vulnerabilities through which the data was obtained, Walmart has failed whatsoever to notify its customers that their data has been stolen. Although it's unknown at the moment how many customers are affected, the filing claims that the number of class members is at least in the thousands. If the maximum damages under the California Consumer Privacy Act are awarded, that means $750 per customer. In a statement, Walmart said they intended to defend any claims made against it. We dispute the plaintiff's allegations that the failure of our systems played any role in the public disclosure of his personally identifiable information, it said. Other firms who are believed to also be lined up for CCPA lawsuits include Salesforce, controversial facial recognition firm Clearview AI, who we've mentioned several times in previous episodes of the GDPR weekly show, and online marketplace Minted. The new law came into force at the start of 2020, but enforcement didn't begin until July the 1st. The new law brings in GDPR-like powers for individuals to demand that companies don't share their data with third parties and that they reveal what information they hold on data subjects. Importantly, though, in this case, it also empowers customers to sue if they feel their privacy rights have been violated even if they themselves have not been the subject of a breach. We don't yet know when this case will be scheduled for court time in California but when we do we will bring you an update in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The Federal Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe has ruled that the privacy of Germans should be better protected the court said that German authorities have too much access to people's internet and mobile phone data, and the laws must be rewritten as they are unconstitutional. Police investigating crimes or trying to prevent terror attacks in Germany are currently allowed to access named addresses, birth dates, and IP addresses. They are not entitled to access data involving connections to other people. However, campaigners challenged existing laws and the judges agreed police should only be allowed such access if there was specific danger or suspicion of a crime. Current laws violated the right of citizens to phone and internet privacy, they ruled. Privacy is a significant concern for Germans for historical reasons dating back to the all-pervasive Stasi intelligence service of the old East Germany and the vicious Gestapo of the Nazi era. There have been two lawsuits on this. The first was filed to the court in 2013 by the European Pirate Party politicians Patrick Breyer and Katharina Noken, who had the backing of 6,000 people. They complained police were given access to data such as email passwords and PIN numbers in relatively minor investigations. Existing laws meant that investigators were able to get hold of such data even without a judge's approval, not just from telecom companies but hospitals and hotels as well. The government has now been ordered by the court to revise the Telecommunications Act by the end of 2021 at the latest. Privacy in Germany has jumped to the fore since the German authorities started work on its coronavirus warning app, ensuring that limited data stored centrally was anonymous and deleted within two weeks. It is understood that in Germany some 15 million people have now downloaded the COVID-19 tracking app. The ruling is also expected to affect how a new law on fighting far-right extremism is used. Under the law, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube will have to report hate speech to police and delete the harmful content within 24 hours. The German government acted after a deadly shooting last October outside a synagogue and at a Chabad bar in the eastern city of Powell. Investigators found that the suspect had visited websites peddling anti-Semitism. The suspect in the case, Stephen Ballier, 28, is due to go to next week in Magdeburg, accused of double murder and the attempted murder of 68 others. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye bye.